Law, Policy, and Markets. I'm Alan Marks. Today I'm joined by Russell Jacobs, a corporate tax partner at Millbank in London, and Rola Huri, the CEO and founder of the UK-based charity Common Earth, working globally together with the Commonwealth of Nations to reverse the impact of climate change through regenerative development. What is the next step beyond the resilience? It's not as an endpoint, but as a starting point. Let's get to it. That's the sound of sperm whales talking. More on that in a moment. Mitigating climate change is about more than just reducing CO2 and greenhouse gas emissions or measuring discrete impacts. Today I'm thrilled to be talking to Russell Jacobs from Millbank and Rola Huri, the founder and CEO of the UK charity Common Earth, about a more systemic and holistic global approach. Russell, Rola, thanks very much for taking the time to get together today. Thank you. Thank you, Alan. Rola, what led you to the new approach that Common Earth is taking to look at how collaboration and science, both globally and using local kind of bottom-up approaches, uh, can build our capacity to mitigate climate change and really create a more sustainable and equitable world? Okay, so I'm going to be, as I am known to be, impulsive and honest. And, and this is a very personal story. And I do believe, actually, at the end, that the personal part of the story is what made this work. So I was frustrated with two things around me. One is the narrative of climate. It was not appealing. It was not engaging. It was not inciting any kind of participation. It is not sexy in the terms of if you want to engage seven, eight billion people of population, because that's what I think is needed in order to do important work. The narrative that is used with climate change and carbon footprint is not something that will speak to kids, to households, to people, to, to anybody. This is not a language. This is probably a language that scientists understand in part, actually, scientists that agree uh, about the numbers that are discussed and the policy that is engaged with the scientists. So there's kind of a bias between the two sides and it excludes many people from this conversation. And participation for such a big problem is the first element. But participation, not by fear narrative, but by inciting participation and encouraging and building on potential and engaging community and working locally. So it's something that is meaningful for people. And it's not something that will happen in 2050, which nobody cares about today, and everybody would be actually more focused on COVID or on actual problems that are around them or things that they understand that are related to where they are and who they are. And the climate narrative is not actually related to who we are and where we are at the moment, the way it is described, in my opinion. So how do you engage people? If you want to engage people and humanity, you need to actually address who we are and those main elements that excite people, engage people, wake up people, let them you know, do something beyond the habits because we are also operating by habits. They need something different in order to engage. And that lack of a persuasive narrative was frustrating. So this is one of the main things that frustrated me. So I, I had to do something that is related to the narrative. And what was the second issue that drove you to found Common Earth? The other issue that frustrated me is in the past, I also worked with some important organizations or leaders or governments. And I also saw that there were important agreements and MOUs signed among important people. 
whether they are important musicians, whether they are important presidents, whether, but nothing really was moving. And all I hear is that by 2030, we have to increase more, things are getting worse, and there were no impactful collaboration whatsoever. They were mostly related to tenures or to interests or to into a nice press event, and they would finish there. So how can collaboration be more substantive? If we really believe that there is such a big problem, you would expect the collaborations to be different. So to really put all of this into effect, Common Earth has partnered with the Commonwealth of Nations based in London at Marlborough House, but spanning between two and three billion people in 54 countries around the world. That gives you tremendous reach and tremendous diversity of people and habitats and biomes with which to try new things. And the Secretary General of the Commonwealth has been quite supportive of the work you're doing. How did that relationship come about? I met the Secretary General of the Commonwealth in a different occasion, and she very much appreciated the experts that I had brought into a different event. And then we said, okay, now we can um, make an event similar for the Commonwealth. Of course, I have to be honest again here, I knew little about the Commonwealth. But when I started looking at it, I understood that it's 2.4 billion people. It's 54 countries. 30% are under the age of 13. So that's the youth of, that's the future of the world. They are present in every continent. They are united by charter, like the, the, the countries can collaborate. There's common law. And I felt that there is this geopolitical context that if they would be the petri dish for the world of successful initiatives that could reflect the potential for the world, then this is a great place to do some important work. So we've got scientists and academics, public policy experts, governments, multinational organizations, NGOs, and of course, private sector uh, actors and investors, and, and not everyone's rowing in the same direction. What was that missing link that Common Earth and the Commonwealth together can achieve to foster more uh, impactful collaboration? What was missing and what I felt was needed is to hold the space for these initiatives to coalesce in a certain way together and become meaningful in a context where everybody can work together. So the governments can actually, the policy can actually work together with the practitioners who have solutions, with the academics locally in places that, you know, the the effects will be seen and measured with different values for the people of the place. Um, and, and, And this is how this whole thing started. Thank you, Rola. I appreciate that. So there's a lot there that I want to come back to. Uh, in particular, a, a bit more about this challenge with respect to narrative and having actual impact as you're, even as you're working with these you know, international organizations with the, you know, the 54 countries through the Commonwealth of Nations and with local communities kind of bottom up where you learn from what works in one area and translate that using science, using, you know, b- bigger systems knowledges into you know, applicability in uh, in other areas. So I, I would like to dig into that in just in just a moment, if we could. Russell, I want to look at how you came into this, because a corporate tax lawyer who's doing multinational deals, I mean, yeah, there's a certain commonality with respect to collaboration and empathy and creativity and figuring out the deep, deep, intricate details of a particular transaction and then translating that into something which can be, you know, effective for the people involved. But now we're talking with with 
with this work that you and Milbank are doing with Common Earth into something which is much more global and systemic and not just transactional. It's really building relationships. What drew you to it? Well, I was I was fortunate enough to have had a prior uh, sort of experience with the Secretary General, Baroness Scotland. I and uh, Milbank lawyers had helped her probably 15 years ago to establish a foundation. It was a global foundation to eliminate domestic violence around the world, beyond the Commonwealth even. And unbeknown to me, Rolla and her had connected through the uh, convenings at the Commonwealth Secretariat in London. She picked up the phone and said two things. One, could you help? I need Milbank's help to set up the foundation, the charity in the UK. And would you mind meeting one of my best friends, Rolla Hui? I sort of didn't really object to either of those. And I'd had already a connection with Haifa University, personally uh, assisting them in particular in the marine biology and marine science sector. So I was interested actually in reverse for introducing Haifa University to the Commonwealth because I knew that they had know-how that could be put to use in what was an emerging blue charter that was coming out of the Commonwealth Secretariat concerned with uh, marine uh, health in the Commonwealth Oceans. So I was sort of invited along, first of all, to meet Rola, who persuaded me that this was bigger than I thought and rather daunting. Secondly, that I could achieve my sort of selfish mission of uh, promoting the science that was going on in Israel in the marine sector beyond their sort of eastern Mediterranean into other oceans. And thirdly, to understand a little bit more about systemic change and how to effect change with the skills that I and our colleagues at Milbank uh, could bring to bear on a pretty large project. So I attended the sort of late, well, the last convening that was at Marlborough House and uh, really had a bit of an epiphany, really. I sat around this table with some you know, very serious scientists and government ministers and was struck by a number of things. First of all, the urgency of the issue, the fact that although 2030 is a slightly artificial deadline. So put us in the room. What was that first meeting like? I was struck by the plight of many of the ocean nations, particularly Dominica that was present, and some of the Pacific Islanders that were present at the convening, and how they were really being impacted today by climate change, and how what was being suggested by Rola and uh, her team to reverse the impact of climate change through systemic regenerative development. So we have an urgent challenge. We have a tool, systemic regenerative development, that can reduce the impacts, especially on coastal zones and island nations, of climate change. What was your third epiphany? The third element, which was really the persuasive catalyst, was an understanding of the intergenerational responsibility that our generation and our call it sort of layer in society with influence, with education, with connection, with a network. Uh, that responsibility of how to put that practice into action. You know, the combination of that interconnection, the intergenerational responsibility, the recognition of urgency really was my call to arms. Yeah, it's interesting too. When I, when I look at sustainability, I often define it as, uh, it's not no development, it's not no growth. I mean, societies need growth. You're not going to alleviate poverty without development of some kind. But what makes it sustainable is that it's growth that helps people without coming at the expense of others, whether that's future generations or vulnerable communities or people in other places. So, so that's what makes it sustainable. 
And when you look at this idea, Rola, of kind of the commonwealth, maybe I'd say commonwealths. You know, it's not just it's not just what we all have in common for that well-being and health of a global society, but you've, there are different ways you can approach it. And one of the things I've, I've, I've noticed in your work is how they're related. So you've talked about social wealth and about natural wealth. Financial wealth, of course, is part of the equation, but also human wealth uh, in, a, in a more cultural way. How are these connected? It's the convenience in a way to measure, like uh, because there's this carbon footprint invites you in a way into a kind of calculation, you know, how much ecological resources you are uh, consuming, your lifestyle, your corporation supply chain, this idea that you can basically calculate your impact and you then you can convert it into a number and then you can navigate your relationship with the world through that number. In a way, life is not like this. There's so much that is remained unmeasured. In this case, the way we approach it is, uh, you know, this top-down initiatives that have failed very much in many of the countries that were, you know, like in Africa, that you, you cannot come and say solar panel, solar panel, solar panel, when it's, it means, first of all, you're ignoring the context where you are talking about solar panels. Second is they will always depend on importing something that they are not themselves producing. Second is ignoring the way also of how they live, actually, and their uh, cultural heritage and what they know. And they know so much more. They lived with so much more for thousands of years. Not to neglect even the fact that they lived so much in coexistence with nature itself, which is like an R&D of 3.8 billion years. And so we come with our geomechanical engineering sites and we think that we can measure everything and that this living being around us, that we can define it and we can measure it as if life did not teach us anything about all the, you know, all the changes. We once said that planet Earth is flat and we took it as a fact and we were not allowed to say it differently. And we need to have that humbleness and that openness to learn and to evolve and to be where we are and understand our relationship in a deeper way. What's interesting, the the common earth is hitting the seam of the mine at an important point when the finance world and the government world, the economic world is recognizing the value of biodiversity and the contribution of nature to it. And what that gives us at common earth is a a sound sort of macro and microeconomic foundation for the policies and practices that we're trying to put forward. Uh, In the UK, I'll give you an example. The government a while ago commissioned a report on what's called the um, economics of biodiversity to identify the correlation between nature and the the, uh, undermining of nature and economics. And, you know, Everyone knows it, as you say, Rola, there's an intuition that this is right and it's obvious, but uh, the measurement of loss of biodiversity and the measurement of the contribution of nature to economies is something that hasn't really been, I think, accepted until now. And it takes these leading academics and the government endorsement of this movement to put it center stage. I want to ask you a question about that, because we started talking about narrative early on. And when you look at metrics, when you look at quantitative assessments of things, first off, I think, Rolo, your point was very well taken. We tend to measure things that are easy to measure. They may not be the ones that are the most important, Uh, or they may be, but but we might might have blind spots. But when you look at, Russell, regenerative finance, which I'll let you define in a moment, 
and what it means to to measure economic impacts of human behavior, uh, either actions or failures to act when we should, especially as they relate to climate change and its impacts. What are we missing? What, what are we What are we measuring wrong? Or is it a matter that we're measuring things wrong or measuring the wrong things? I think we're measuring the wrong things. I think we're we we have been brought up. Whether this is a sort of post Keynesian thing that we've been brought up to look at measurements such as GDP, not social wealth, not natural wealth, and so we we look at money supply. We look at all the traditional measures that we, we've grown up with, and we haven't looked wider than those measures. And and this this is you know, been accepted by the UK government. It says. At the heart of the problem lies deep-rooted, widespread institutional failure. And that goes straight to the heart of both the underpinning pillars of uh, economy. For example, the focus on growth. Why do currencies and exchange rates focus on, uh, on, on growth rather than internal happiness? You know, the, the, the value of nature, the biodiversity loss rate, for example, aren't those as important? And so, you know, the conclusion of this report is the solution starts with understanding and accepting the simple truth. Our economies are embedded within nature, not external to it. You know, there's a term called interbeing. So like that everything is really interconnected. And I really believe that our potential is very much interlinked with life's potential and it's evolving. Our well-being and health depends on the well-being and health of our planet. And the reason, as I said, for all the problems of global warming is the lack of social justice as well are all because we have lost the connection with ourselves and with the place we live in. And I also think that the social healing and the ecological healing are very much interconnected. And going back to your, your, your question about regenerative finance, it is a wider model looking at the metrics, not looking for, for example, an immediate cash return, looking for the mingling of philanthropy and capital markets. Governments that value the contribution of nature to their economy could quite easily shift an asset, whether it's a tax credit or some other credit from their balance sheet into regenerative finance as a subsidy for supporting nature. Just in a nutshell, what is regenerative finance? It's a good question. I, I think regenerative finance is a new way of looking at how to use the markets that we have uh, to finance longer-term regenerative projects that do not produce immediate return. Uh, they may not produce any return, but they are distinct from aid, and they're quite distinct from the traditional capital markets uh, instruments. Is this a fair distinction? I mean, so let me make a contrast. I personally have just, I've recently closed a green bond, which is financing a biofuels project in the United States, working on a sustainability-linked private placement of notes for an uh, international shipping uh, company, which means that if there's a sufficient decarbonization metrics that are achieved, that there's a benefit to the pricing or penalty, conversely, I guess, if you don't hit those metrics. Uh, those are all, though, tied to cash flows. Those are tied to companies which are meant to generate funds. And it sounds like regenerative finance is a little different in the sense of really not financing output, not financing revenues or cash flows associated with activity, uh, but instead financing the preservation of resources, basically the preservation, an incentive for the preservation of 
either future productive capacity or future unproductive in an economic narrow sense capacity because it's an important part of biodiversity more broadly defined. Is that is that a fair distinction? Yes, uh, but on top of that, there's no reason why the environment that you're protecting or the system that you're trying to regenerate cannot be productive on a net basis. So even though there might be an investment period whilst you are rebuilding, rehabituating species, there won't be a return. The return can come from a number of quarters. If you are, as, as we are at Common Earth, trying to build capacity to enhance potential of communities that are susceptible to climate change. For example, uh, we've been looking at marine protected areas where the economic challenge is to fund the gap between the loss of income of the, say, the local fishermen, but the need to regenerate their livelihood by turning them from sort of poachers into gatekeepers. In the Seychelles, there was a bond financing a marine protection area as part of their 30 by 30, 30% by 2030 of marine protected areas that entailed essentially a philanthropic donation into a fund that would be released towards the end of the period to provide the income to subsidize that gap. So the answer, we're not not trying to preserve the world. We're trying to sustainably regenerate these biomes, these environments, so that uh, particularly local people who are undermined or overwhelmed by climate change can have the capacity and the potential to be productive and pay back an investment. So maybe another way to look at that economically is to say the market is underpricing nature, right? We're underpricing natural capital either by discounting or ignoring scarcity or by undervaluing its social worth. Now, social norms, I mean, laws, these disclosures about supply chains, all of that can change the situation. We can, you know, with regenerative finance, what have you, you can value biodiversity and nature's regenerative capacity where we don't assume that natural resources are infinite or that technology will always, you know, overcome scarcity. Absolutely. And, 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 the, and the role of common earth in a way, is to look systemically at capacity building, linking not just individual species or individual biomes. So we, we won't just work with marine, we'll work with the consequences of what is going on land uh, because of the marine sector, what's going on with indigenous groups because of land use and ocean use. So when you build up that sort of holistic picture and you interconnect the potential of increasing fish stock with increasing livelihood, improving land use, making the population resilient against the impact of climate change, you can have a systemic change that is still ultimately remunerative. It's remunerative for the community and it's remunerative for those who have invested in that community. And that, to my mind, is is regenerative finance. On that, you align the right partnerships that understand this and hold the same vision with you or are open to do beyond because they understand that working basically in silos in their own ways on their own did not go anywhere. So having that possibility to open collaborations from different fields, whether it's marine and land, as in this case, different ministries in the government, that look at things in a more holistic way, that would make the difference this time because the partnership that are aligned are different than before when they approached only one sector on its own. So 
one of the ways that we can learn from the earth is by listening. And I know, Russell, you talked about empathy and empathetic communication, but the biggest part of that really is not just saying something and not having your own narrative, but giving somebody else's narrative some space and, and learning from it. This idea of language and AI and technology, which allows us now to learn another language without having a Rosetta Stone or this kind of a common translator in the middle, may yield some surprising new possibilities for interspecies communication. I know Common Earth has been working on this with its project SETI. Russell Arola, can you tell us a bit about that and what the goal might be? Project SETI is both an amazing scientific project in its own right, but it also has tremendous metaphorical value for the uh, regenerative capacity of the place where it's being conducted. On the scientific level, um, it's a project that's a collaboration between a number of great universities, uh, Harvard, MIT, UC Berkeley, Imperial, Haifa, number of uh, excellent faculties focusing on translating the the language of the sperm whale. Cetacean Translation Initiative is what it stands for. The idea that uh, we can understand these whales in context and build a language or an understanding of their language, which is a click sort of coder-based system, and talk back. So this isn't one way. This is having a conversation with a species that travels the world, has a brain six times the size of a human, has been almost hunted to extinction, but is fairly resilient, is an amazing project in itself. The regenerative capacity, which amazingly each of the scientists in the project see, is that they're bringing to a place, the Eastern Caribbean, learning skills, research skills, capacity in the science of AI, machine learning, linguistics, uh, creation of soft robotics, robots that can be uh, uh, sort of attached to the species without any damage to them at all, and engaging and teaching the local population in these skills that are usually the preserve of other places is a tremendous investment in itself in the community. And we've been very lucky encountering this project, having the scientists understand exactly the metaphorical value of this for the community and building relationships with the local universities, the local ministries, the entire region who have now mandated us to develop a system of marine protection based on the empathic response that we had to the project that they had to us and the learning that's coming out of it and our investment in the university network has led to some real potential for capacity building in 15 plus islands with mostly beleaguered communities. Another thing about this project in particular that makes it really special, I mean, we all know that the whales population around the world are like under significant pressure, of course, and they mirror a lot of the environmental problems such as climate change or overfishing or entanglements in nets, the plastic pollution in the ocean and and all of that. This project in particular really like invites us to listen deeply to these whales in a way to have a different relationship with nature, language defines reality. And, and it's, it is like that. And language today is one of the problems that we are lo- like locked 
in a context and we don't see solutions outside because every word already means a specific thing. And so as if the solutions that we are, we find ourselves revolving around are in the same contexts. And somehow if we thinking that this being has a brain, as just Russell said, six times bigger than ours, but they have social behaviors just like ours. If we start to understand what they are saying about the ocean and not in terms of carbon sequestration, their wisdom of life, their sacredness of life, then our reality and our understanding of reality as well will change. Our relationship with life changes because it's actually that detachment from it, that detachment from this element will uh, will actually merge and reconnect back. And this is in a way my hope from the whales in this specific project. Also the fact that they would open us to be more empathic, more uh, compassionate, understanding what they are actually saying because they just behave like us. And we never really treated fish in such a way as if, you know, fish is a cold thing and it's being served in dishes for whoever is uh, not vegan. And in this case, you start to understand actually what they are calling you for, what they are saying, their relationship. They are a matriarchal society. So it's the, the baby, the calf and the mother and the grandmother and the wisdom that is going and the teaching that is going between them. And, and starting to understand that we are not the only ones around here. They are just like us. If you know, I don't want to say better. I just want to say we are on an, the inter- species communication is becomes very critical and what we say to them and what they say to us and understanding is critical for our relationship in the world and who we are in this world you know rola even for someone who's used to thinking outside the box and looking for creative ways to collaborate on these problems it doesn't seem like an obvious choice to combine marine biology with ai and machine learning on this question of you know can we talk to whales what really you know, attracted you to Project SETI? I just felt that SETI, this is how I chose SETI. It was not because I understood what are sperm whales and where they are. It was because of there's a lot of things coming my way and the, my sense of per purpose is taking shape. And the relationships around me makes, I don't want to say makes sense because it's already like judging, but they're fitting in a certain way in my life. Like that satisfying click when you put the puzzle piece in and it just... My God. Yeah. Yes. This is the ripple effect that needs to continue with a project like this. Yeah, I like that. You, you know, there's this idea that uh, as humans, we may have dominion over nature, but what that really means is do we have a duty to protect it and to refrain from abusing our power to destroy or exhaust it? That is a universal message which actually drives it. That, that is probably the core DNA strand of common earth, that we don't own the land. There's no point in fighting over land use, ocean use, who, who has dominion over a particular species or people or tribe. We are guardians. And once you put yourself in the position of guardian, you look at the world and your social responsibility quite differently. And that's really how I got involved, how I persuade our colleagues at Millbank to get involved, because it's a whole narrative shift. And, you know, frankly, most people are good. And most people have that empathic understanding of social responsibility and social justice. And Common Earth is a social justice movement. It's about 
making sure that the right resource is allocated fairly into parts of the world that have historically been generally exploited and now they're being undermined by climate change and other degradation, biodiversity loss. And so it is a human responsibility to regenerate. And the only other point I'd make, Alan, is that the idea of a, a hub of knowledge and goodwill, um, such as Project SETI, sort of fans out into other initiatives. And this uh, Common Earth Regenerative Development Institute that is being developed in conjunction with the University of the West Indies and Haifa University and a whole host of other leading universities around the world through alliances, demonstrates that they have trust in Common Earth, they have trust in Roller's narrative and the storytelling. And that's that's a huge catalyst for change, that, that trust, because that trust leads to collaboration. It starts small with individual projects, but it can very easily scale up once you've had a proof of concept. And so uh, we're very, very optimistic that in short order, will be affecting quite deep-rooted systemic change in this area, in this region. If you'll pardon the old movie reference, we'd like a little bit more Day of the Dolphin and a little less Day of the Jackal. <laughs> exactly. There is a beautiful poem uh, of a Senegalese poet that um, he said, in the end, we will conserve only what we love. We will love only what we understand. And we will understand what we have learned through experience. And for me, in this case, having that love comes out from the story of the whales and the education that is uh, accompanying it will take us like really far. There's a group from the U.S., indigenous people who are saying, if you want to walk into the future, then walk into beauty. And this is another thing that I feel that is very much critical that this is going to be like the reflection, like, again, it's not a, they didn't say walk in efficiency and in, in calculations. That's the only way that, you know, and this project against SETI, we're talking about future and there's technology, but there's definitely the common ground is the beauty and the beauty of life and, and, the, and the whales and the ocean and the, everything that is surrounding it. Yeah, you remind me of a poem that I've, I've always liked, um, by by Wendell Berry, he's one um, of the lines in it. He says, "There are no unsacred places; there are only sacred places and desecrated places." Absolutely, yes. He has great points. Yeah. <laughs> Luckily, the philosophy of regenerative development can turn the desecrated into sacred. Let me ask you though: if you approach a situation, you approach someone who or a different being who speaks differently than you, different language, they have a different thought pattern than you, perhaps, different experience than you. It's one thing to say, yes, we're all going to come together with empathy, and we're going to respect each other and learn from each other, and I suspect the result of that would be a better, happier, healthier place. But how do you deal with a situation where the other is not empathetic, where they are thinking in a rigid, negative way, how do you effect change and build a relationship to create empathy where it's not present? I'm, I'm going to try to answer it indirectly and then try to see if I'm going to... I never thought about it like this because I think we are all born as empathic people. And I don't think... It's just that we probably disconnect 
and it's out of a fear narrative that we don't connect with our feelings. One of the elements of success in our convenings, and, and we held five convenings at the Secretariat, is the mixing of various people that most likely did not speak together before in a context that is not exactly always been um, it's not taking for granted that these people would talk. We had indigenous people in the room with our last convening uh, from various countries. There's a lot of cultural issues that I came to learn as well about much more from talking to these groups. And the way they talked to each other was when the narrative was wider than the history itself in the context. It was more embracing of who we are really as human beings. And I remember at the end of one of the convenings, the indigenous, the old, the elder woman that was from New Zealand, she approached another person in the room as a grandmother. She did not speak from the role of I'm indigenous and I've been hurt from you. They, they, they had a, a trajectory, which is the future and that what's mattering at the moment. They held the common ground on what we are all agreeing, whether I'm a minister in the room, which we had, whether I am a practitioner and whether I am an indigenous and whether I am a funder. They were all talking from the same grounds. And on those grounds, everybody meets. When you're in a wild sea, what you see is your trust in the people around you and you build your trust on what you know. And in that context, in our convenings, what we try to build is awareness of a bigger awareness of who is sitting in the room and not by the roles. And this initiative is successful because it is not initiative of organizations. Of course, they're important organizations, but it's the commitment of the people and their trust in humanity to step up and do something more than you know, what is actually reflected today is what is holding it together. And so it's not really limited to those specific definitions about who, who I could be in that room. If I could add to that, two, two observations. First is we have got used to, in a way, underestimating the power of maternal structures. The whale population, as Rola said, is based on maternal structures. It's no coincidence that the next project this team wants to investigate is the language of elephants, again, a maternal structure, because the empathic response that whales and elephants produce to create culture, and these herds and family groups have culture as well as language, uh, is based on maternal uh, signals, maternal uh, input. The, the second point, going to your question, Alan, about what happens when you think you don't have empathic people in the room? How can you advocate this systemic change? It's an interesting question. One of our collaborators is um, Professor, now Sir Simon Baron-Cohen, who's the world expert on autism and empathy. And his view is quite clearly that if you're in the zone of zero empathy, if you have someone with 1% of empathy, as he measures it, he's the uh, architect of the empathy quotient, it's still worth working on. You don't abandon that one percenter. So we've been in the room with people who have doubted many of our suggested and projects, but we found that the way to get them 
to understand what we are trying to do is by listening, showing that we understand where they're coming from. And this is particularly important with both indigenous groups that we haven't really had access to. It's really important because the post-colonial narrative that is out there uh, creates a suspicion. So an empathic response back, understanding their language, uh, communicating uh, empathically is a tool of persuasion. And we found you're able to get to a point of reconciliation. It's not necessarily compromise, but reconciling different parties' aims is part of effecting change. And we have both understood the language of these indigenous groups as a tool, not an obstacle to effecting change. And so whilst Common Earth is a grand charity and it has tremendous authority and great access to 54 nations and two and a half billion people, at the end of the day, we implement change by engaging with very small groups locally and listening and learning. And that, that's the skill, going back to what lawyers should be good at, uh, that is a skill that we learn, to listen and learn and implement. Yeah, it's sort of like this chain, if you start with the word common, as in common earth or commonwealth or you know, common interest or common good, if we recognize we have something in common, we're in the same boat, it helps to then create an environment where we can establish trust and learn from each other. And then you can focus more on hope and the possible upside of collaboration and less on this fear, whether it's fear of, you know, loss, fear of loss of agency, fear of, you know, not having enough if it's viewed as a zero-sum scarcity situation. But there's a, a possibility for collaboration and maybe even generosity, which can lead to a much better outcome absolutely, you know, for everybody. I still think it's, I think it's a challenging process, both socially and uh, as a matter of policies. One other thought that comes to mind, and maybe Russell ask you on this, when you overlay public policy and you overlay economics on this, are there, are there systemic changes in rules uh, that governments should be implementing so that the economic incentives of actions or investments or projects that mitigate the impact of climate change are rewarded, or so that there, maybe there's conversely more of a penalty for things which are more destructive, potentially? Absolutely. I, I'm much more in favor of reward than penalty. I think... Uh, uh, we have to understand the cost of our actions, and I think that is fast becoming obvious through fairly decent media and other narrative coverage. But people act not through the stick on a long term. They act through a reward system. We should get higher rewards for investing properly in sustainable and regenerative investments, not through, in my opinion, greenwashed bonds and other things that are the responsibility of the capital markets proper. Rola, what makes you the most hopeful about the next 10 years of your work? I'm seeing the impact. First of all, I never lost trust in people. And it's a very much shoulder to shoulder initiatives. I can see where we're going with this. If we are scaling projects like the project of SETI into a bioregional scale or a regional scale, 
And in this case, I feel we're on the right track. We're getting this confirmation all the time from the people with whom we are working. We're working in trust and cross-sectoral innovations and the kind of partnerships from outside that we are linking with. And I can see that having an academic institution that is actually building capability and capacity in place And it's reflected in a project that is about restoration for the place. So if it's the restoration of a marine protected area in the Caribbean, they see it and they get the impact with all the difficulties and the logistics that we are going to face on the way. But having the institute that works together and reflect the communities and is actually coming together in a marine protected area that is inclusive of the land projects and everything that is together. And the government is very much welcoming and collaborating as it did so far. And at the moment, the other countries in the Caribbean are looking at us in the same hope because they saw what we've done in Dominica. And so if we succeeded in Dominica, there's no reason why we won't succeed in other places. But this is a project that we will be engaged in for the coming five, seven years. And hopefully this is going to be the legacy we will leave for the youth in that region. And is the narrative of collaborative innovation resonating? So if we tell the story with that narrative that I was talking about in the beginning, and we tell the stories for other regions around the world, and in this case, there are four other regions, you can see how change would happen in the world. People respond. You incite participation. You're not coming from outside and telling them what is important. What is the next step beyond the resilience? It's not as an end point, but as a starting point, because they have their strengths and their qualities that the world doesn't know about, and they didn't have the chance because they're very much dependent at the moment on the aid and the support from outside. We tell this story well, and it embraces life and the whales and everything that is under the water and above the water. Then you can go everywhere else. I see when I'm talking with youth and I see how people are nodding. And again, they're not nodding because I'm convincing them on this side. They're nodding because one, they want to be part of this change and they don't want to be overwhelmed by the size of the problem. They want to try to vision what they can do specifically to be part of this solution. Yeah. And you know, if two thirds of that population is under 30, That gives you both the incentive and the urgency and also the capacity for real change. Exactly. And the the energy and the future, and there is no shifting blame on anybody anymore. If policy would stand together with the academics and the innovation and the locals and the strength of the place, and there is an alignment for the sake of making this thing come together, then there is no reason why. There's no ego in here. It's only about bringing that impactful collaboration in a language that is understood by everybody who wants to be part of it. Well, Rola, thank you very, very much for sharing the work you're doing with with Common Earth and for taking the time today to talk about it. Russell, thank you very much for the work you're doing at Millbank and bringing Millbank to be a partner with with Common Earth in, in this effort. Been a pleasure talking. Thank you very much. Thank you so much. Thank you for joining us on another episode of Law, Policy, and Markets, Millbank Conversations. Follow us on your favorite podcast platform and learn more at millbank.com.